Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everybody. It's Jason here. This episode was recorded a few weeks ago. And since then, we've had the sad news of the passing of Zach Nielsen, Harry's son, who was a great guy who really worked hard on his father's legacy and interacted with all of Harry's fans online. And uh, so we'd like to dedicate this episode to him. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. The legend goes that when John and Paul were in the USA in May 1968 doing press for the launch of Apple, they were asked who their favourite group was, and both of them said Nielsen. Harry Edward Nielsen III was born as his own song states in 1941. He was a unique songwriter, however, his biggest hits were covers. He was a garrulous friend to musicians, but he never managed to play a live tour. And he had a singular career which wound in and out of the Beatle universe. So it's kind of hard to know where to start, really, isn't it, Stephen? Yes, I mean, uh, Harry Nilsson is a figure in his own right, but he also looms large in the legend of uh, virtually every rock star, particularly in the early 70s, that L.A., uh, crowd that the Beatles then ended up hanging with uh, Ringo and George in particular. Yeah, and there's plenty of times, like I don't think there's a, a Beatle biography that uh, that you can pick up or even a solo Beatle biography where Harry doesn't sort of pop up from time to time and, uh, you know, is is doing something exciting. He's, do- <laughs> to put he's, doing, he's doing something interesting, certainly. Yes, I mean, he's, he's, he's a foil at some stage. He's a foil for, you know, George, Ringo and... Uh, particularly uh, John, um, but uh, Paul less so uh, in, in the later years. Um, but uh, yeah, he's, he's very inextricably linked. I mean, he described himself at one stage as the, the potential fifth Beatle in a kind of mocking Way. Yes. And I think Derek Taylor also called him the American Beatle, which is an interesting thing to keep, to keep in the back of your mind, you know, yeah. but he, he is a certain, uh, there's a certain anglophilic, anglophilic nature to his music, I would say. Um, but he's, what we're going to try and do today is we're going to try and, you know, do two things at once, which is kind of an overview of the arc of Harry's career, but also because we're a Beatles podcast is to plug into the Beatles story where necessary to, to give a bit of context as to why, um, why Harry is there in the first place. When, when we do read these biographies, he's, he's, as we kind of said in the intro there, he's a multi-talented man, Harry, isn't he? There's, there's many things that he managed to get done in his career. He is. I mean, uh, I suppose the first thing to talk about is his voice. I mean, he just, uh, particularly in the early years, uh, he has an incredible voice, an incredible range. Uh, and you add to that, he's also um, uh, just a really top flight 
songwriter. Um, he's a he's a vocal arranger. Uh, you think about the the vocal parts he put together, particularly on the Ringo album or the Goodnight Vienna album. Um, he he's somebody that that really has all of those talents in 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 one uh, one package. Um, but it it he always seems to be on the sidelines. He's always hanging out with the stars, but he never really has that uh, uh, sort of big breakthrough. I yeah. suppose. Um, so let's have a little look at uh, the road because before Harry gets involved with the Beatles themselves, there's, you know, his pre-professional and professional career uh, on the road to that. So before that sort of May 1968 crowning from John and Paul, which kind of really does divert the spotlight onto Nielsen and, you know, so much so that it's it's still worth talking about all these years later. But um, yeah, Harry was born in, in 1941 and he's doing a number of jobs uh, to try and figure out a way into the music business in the 60s. And what's amusing is that his first um, step or the first thing we know him for in the music business is a Beatle-related effort in, in 1964. Yes, we've talked about this uh, on the songs about the Beatles written by other people. I think the title um, was longer than that, maybe, I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, so this is this is sort of 1964. It's a song called All for the Beatles. Um, it's one of those novelty tracks uh, that sort of cash in. Uh, Stand Up and Holler was the alternative title. And I think it was the Photo Phi 4. It doesn't yeah. roll off the, roll off the tongue. <laughs> um, it's, uh, there were four parts four-part vocals, uh, all recorded by Harry. So this is this is indicative of, of the way his career would go in terms of uh, overdubbing and harmonizing with himself and doing these kind of arrangements. The I've never seen a copy of this, um, yeah. but it came with a little piece of eight millimeter film, uh, which is clips of the, the Beatles from February 64. And uh, supposedly you could play the film and play the record and it would all sync up. I don't know if that's actually true. Yeah, it's a pretty high-flying concept for a 1964 novelty single that should be playing movies and music together. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, you know, you buy the single, you never play the movie. That's <laughs> no, no, Who's going to play the movie? It's sort of, what, three minutes long? You're yeah. going to get the, get the projector out, get the screen out, <laughs> sync it up. Get the family around. But yeah. you're, you're, you're right there. You can't overstate, though, his, uh, you know, that there's a thread that runs through Nielsen, particularly in, in, in his core early 70s work, which is that he's a great kind of studio marvel, that he's great at multi-tracking, he's great at overdubbing himself, so much so that you almost don't notice it in the records. You know, it, it, it seems very straightforward and easy, but it's actually his his records, when you start to zoom in on it, have an awful lot of technical smart stuff going on. It, that's absolutely right. It's very subtle. It's very sophisticated. And, uh, you know, you have to remember, this is this is sort of the early days, you know, 1964. This mm. is this is early days of that type of uh, sort of close harmony overdubbing. The Beatles are sort of exploring this at the same time with George Martin. Um, but th this is this is becomes the hallmark of Harry's career. And I say his vocal arrangements for his own records and other people's records are stunning. Yeah, there's a little bit of kind of Beatle double tracking going on at that time, yeah. which is yeah. kind of seen as a novelty when they're joining in on a line or two. But, you know, Harry is kind of working along the, the fringes. He does do a, a soundtrack in the 60s as well, but his main day job is working in a bank. And he's uh, working in a bank when he gets his main break, which uh, allows him to quit his job, which is he gets a, a song 
recorded by the Monkees, which is a bit of a payday for him where he's able to yeah. leave. And that song is Cuddly Toy from the Monkees album, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn and Jones Limited. Shall we do an hour on the Monkees, Stephen? Well, I think you could do an hour on the Monkees. Here we go. No, but it was, uh, it's again, though, Cuddly Toy is probably a song where, you know, Harry's name appears you know, on the album sleeve as a writer, it go, that name goes into millions of homes. It earns him a decent payday enough to quit his job. And Cuddly Toy, despite its name, is not, it's actually not really a nice, like it's a it's, good song. It's catchy and all the rest. But when you start to look at its layers, it's kind of it's, unpleasant. It's very unpleasant. It's, it's, it, but I'd be right in saying it's the most subversive thing the Monkees ever recorded. Well, I there's mean, a couple it, of things. That album also has Star Collector on it, which is a song yeah. about like a really dismissive, horrible song about groupies. And yeah. uh, there's, there's lots of stuff going on in six, 67 monkeys switcher there's lots of stuff that's just really kind of mean like even a, a song like she and all this kind of stuff they're, 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 you know some people would say they're misogynistic and uh, you know certainly with our 21st century lens there are certain types of attitudes in these songs certainly the cuddly toy song seems to be to use a modern term could i say slut shaming Yes, I mean it's 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 a very misogynistic uh, song, but it's also it's also that very dark sense of humour. Yes, that, and that it, really there comes is... out, and, and and it's it's you double down on that by having a group like the Monkees record it. I mean, I know <laughs> yeah. they were kind of trying to break away from uh, the, but but it's early in their career for them to be recording something like that. You know? Yeah, no, it's. Uh... But uh, it's a great, uh, it, it is a very catchy song. And it's, uh, as you say, yeah, you, if, if you want to take it with a, a po-faceness, you can say this isn't right. But actually, the thing to remember about Harry is he is funny. And yeah. he, as uh, he, he, this song, Cuddly Toy, uh, comes out on the Monkeys album in November 67. And his first big break commercial album was the album Pandemonium Shadow Show, which is hard to say, even on the yes. album itself, the announcer finds it hard to say. And uh, this comes out a month later in December 1967. And so obviously Nielsen and the Monkees shared a record label RCA, which would have made it easy for pre-release copies to have circulated. And I think it might have been Nesmith who was the person who mm. drew Harry into the, or maybe it was Dolenz who drew Harry into the the, the Monkees orbit. But Pandemonium, Pandemonium Shadow Show <laughs> comes out so hard. Well, we're going to have, we're going to to move on quickly Um, but it's uh, Pandemonium Shadow Show has Beatles material on it and what's interesting is it has um, a very straightforward cover of She's Leaving Home which if you look at the record notes is only a week or two after Pepper comes out that he records that yes about 10 days later and it's it's a fairly straight arrangement but you think you can can hear in the string arrangement and the sort of the the melodicism of that song and also the subject matter Mm. I think all of the things it sort of I, I guess this ticks a lot of boxes for Harry. Well, Harry's, you know, you, you look at Harry's songs and, you know, there's an awful lot of songs about being abandoned or being lonely mm. or solitude, you know, songs like 1941 and um, songs like Daddy's Song. So She's Leaving Home would fit into the the Nielsen repertoire. Yeah. Uh, and it's recorded in June 67. And it's worth flagging. It's probably an obvious thing to say, but Harry is a huge Beatles fan. This this is the thread that runs all through this. He is a massive, massive yes. fan of the Beatles and just thinks they are the ultimate, the untoppables. Yes. yes. And I mean, he hasn't met them. He has no, no sort of, you know, entry into their orbit at this point. He's just a huge 
fan. Yeah, absolutely. But the other track on, I have to say it again now, Pandemonium Shadow Show, that is perhaps more significant is a song that's called You Can't Do That. Mm. Uh, and it's not really a straightforward cover of the Hard Day's Night track, You Can't Do That, even though it, it, it does hang itself on that. It's it's something else, isn't it? It's it's something else entirely. It's like the first mashup. Mm. You know, so the the idea here is he's, he talks about this himself and he said... Um, he was playing with his guitar and this is a bit of a side swipe. He said, I, I struck a chord and I thought uh, that lends itself to a million different songs. And I noticed how many Beatles songs could be played on this one chord. So I ran down to the uh, music store, got a Beatles songbook and finished the song that night. So what, what he does here is he just sings and overlays the vocal lines from I don't know, was it about a dozen, 15 songs? I, I, I've written it out. It's two minutes, 20 seconds long. And as I said, it's based on You Can't Do That, but it quotes, uh, She's a Woman is the first song he quotes. Then I'm Down, Drive My Car, You're Going to Lose That Girl, Good Day Sunshine, Hard Day's Night, Rain, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Day Tripper, Paperback Writer, Do You Want to Know a Secret, Yesterday. And right at the end, he interpolates Strawberry Fields Forever. So it brings it right up to 1967. So he's weaving all of these refrains and melody lines into a version of You Can't Do That. And, 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 and he's saying he, he arranged that in yeah. one evening. That was one evening's work. You yeah, know? very natural for him. And it's, so it's a, what, what I like about it is, you know, it's, it's very skillful, you know, for a mm. guy essentially, you know, working on his own with a producer. And it doubles as a tribute to the Beatles. I know the Beatles so well inside out. You know, I know the catalogue that I can do something like this. But it's also, you could argue, slightly mocking. It's not a tribute with any kind of reverence. It's really a bit of a lark. It is. It is. It's, it's, it's that point where he says, you know, I realized how many songs by the Beatles could be played on one chord. And he 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 is there is a slightly mocking tone to it. Um, mm. But at the same time, you you can't help even if you're a Beatles fan, you can't help but uh, enjoy it for what it is. Oh, it absolutely puts a big smile on your face. And it is this album that is the thing that pushes Nielsen into the Beatles consciousness. And it seems to be through Derek Taylor, who I guess is the, the first port that it goes through and you know maybe if these Beatles songs weren't on the album Derek wouldn't have noticed it but you can imagine Derek hearing you can't do that and saying oh I have to have to get this to the bosses yeah you think that must be the song that that, that was the hook um, so supposedly Derek buys a, a, an entire crate uh, box of these albums I'm not going to try and pronounce the title because <laughs> go on <laughs> Pandemonium Shadow Show there you go there you go <laughs> Um, he buys a copy of that album and then buys a crate of that album and he starts handing it out to friends. And as you say, he sends it over to London, sends it back to the bosses uh, who are, you know, in the middle of selling up Apple and uh, saying, this is something you have to you have to listen to. And uh, you've, you've got to imagine it. It was that song that there was the hook. Yeah. Uh, and so before that sort of May 68 press conference, when John and Paul kind of crown him the, the greatest thing in the world, there's a couple of interactions with the Beatles. We think George yes. is the first Beatle he meets in L.A. George, yes, George is in L.A. Uh, this is in August of 67. Uh, oh, it's that early, is it? It's that early. He's oh, nice. uh, he's he's on, on the rented house in Blue Jay Way. OK. And um, uh Derek Taylor brings Harry to meet him. And uh, he Harry brings a rough cut of his next album, which is Ariel Ballet. Uh, you know, they get on famously. And Harry says he described George as being in a white windblown robe with a beard and long hair, looking like Christ with a camcorder. <laughs> That's, you know, it's like... Okay. Uh, 
But um, and he recalled that George had heard the album and was very complimentary and they hung out and smoked a little reefer and had a good time. And then in, in early 68, uh, you know, once the album is out and it reaches Lennon and McCartney and all, everyone else, they they ring Harry, don't they? They get in touch. Yeah, this this is a very funny sort of <laughs> sequence. So apparently uh, John, after binge listening to the album just constantly for you know a day or two, uh, he rang up and Harry saying, you know, I was asleep. A voice called and said, this is John. You're too much. You're great. Uh, we should get together and do something. And he was going, who is this? He said, oh, it's John Lennon. He's going, yeah, right. He said, no, no, it's John. I just wanted you know tell you how great you were. Have a go back to sleep. Have a great day. And that was it. Um, and then the next week, uh, that was on a Monday, the following Monday, Paul rings and said, hello, Harry, this is Paul. Just want to say you were great and yeah, fantastic. Uh, John gave me the album. Uh, look forward to meeting you. And uh, his in the biography, uh, his biographer says, Harry got up the next Monday, you know, got dressed and sat waiting for the four o'clock in the morning call from Ringo, but it never came. It never, yeah. Um, yeah it never came. <laughs> There'd be but, plenty but, of yeah, future so, calls from Ringo, though. I'm, uh, yeah, but, but, but you know, the, the Beatles are then individually ringing him and say, yeah, love this, love this record. And you think, could it have gone the other way? Could they have heard you can't do that and thought, uh, yeah. This guy is a this smart guy. Alec. Well, yeah. the, 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 there's a thing, I, I think we've touched on it once or twice before, where the Beatles had a different type of respect or acknowledgement of US artists than they did for mm-hmm. UK artists. And so particularly on the London scene, it wasn't that they were unfriendly to other acts. You know, we knew they hung out with the Who and the Rolling Stones socially and all the rest, but they were never particularly uh, open about uh, promoting their records or, no. you know, saying, oh, this is great or, or look at mm. this. Whereas for American acts, you know, they were a little bit more, you know, they would talk about the soul and Motown loves and, you know, they big up Harry, which they're doing here. They big up to the monkeys, as I mentioned before. They, they didn't, I, I think the Atlantic was enough of a, a break for them to feel a little less threatened. It could be. And I mean, I suppose there's always that thing that America in those days, you know, that was the origins of rock and roll. It was Elvis. It was Little Richard. It was Jerry Lee Lewis. It was Carl Perkins. This, these, these are the, this is the land of the, that delivered the music uh, to their door sort of thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, they, they. Yeah, they do. They do take it that way. And so when they eventually land on American soil and they're there on the 14th of May, 1968, they they do a press conference in New York announcing the formation of Apple Corps. And uh, Lennon is asked to name his favorite American artist. And he says, Harry Nielsen, it's Nielsen. And McCartney says the same thing. And later on, they also claim that, you know, Nielsen for president. They're really ringing the Nielsen bell and they don't. What's sweet about it is there's nothing in it for them to say that. It's not like he's he's coming on the Apple label or even though that was mooted at one point. But yeah, uh, it's that. It's exactly a genuine right. enthusiasm. It's a genuine enthusiasm. They're not, they're not, uh, this isn't, there's, there's no side to this. There isn't any kind of financial aspect to it. Uh, there's no publicity, no promotion in it for them. No, it's, it's, it's genuine, genuine uh, love of the, of the guy and the, the product. And so not long after, you know, Lennon and McCartney finished their US uh, Apple publicity jaunt that uh, Derek Taylor summons Harry uh, over to London. And uh, so Harry says, all of a sudden I was the fab blonde beetle from the USA and a man of mystique, he remembered later. Invited to fly to England to attend the recording of the White Album, he went to the offices of Apple and found office workers wearing badges saying, Harry is here, which is very sweet. That's uh, hilarious. Yeah. yeah, Part of my paranoia told me that this was all a joke, said Harry. But it kind of needs into the next phase of of Harry versus the Beatles, which is when he 
gets inside their lives. And he's he's kind of he he gets introduced pretty quickly for a group who can be kind of cold. Yes. It, I mean, I mean, maybe it's indicative of the the kind of Apple years and the kind of accessibility where they were encouraging people. But because he had caught the ear of Derek Taylor, I suppose, he's mm. just he gets right into that inner circle. You imagine most people calling it Apple don't get past the lovely green carpeted reception. But um <laughs> Harry, you know, is already in there with Derek Taylor. He's already met George and suddenly he's hanging out with them socially. He's in the studio. He's they're playing him demo tapes. Yeah. Um, and as you say, there, there, there was this if he hadn't been signed to RCA, he undoubtedly would have ended up on the Apple label. Yeah. Now, over the years that follow, Harry becomes maybe most synonymous with Ringo and John. But before we get yeah. to that point, uh, we might kind of look at, you know, Harry with George and Paul over the years, because those those uh, interactions are maybe a little bit uh, less involved. And that's probably because George and Paul stayed based in the UK across the late 60s and early 70s. And John and Ringo gradually moved over to the US. I think that I think that's absolutely right, um, because George in particular uh, seemed to share that sort of dark sense of humor. And, uh, you know, he played on a number of Harry records. Uh, he dated Harry's ex-girlfriend uh, for, a time, <laughs> for a time. It was it was that, the 70s. It was the 70s. It was it was the 70s. Um, but he played on on a number of uh, songs that Harry did, most notably uh, you're breaking my heart. You know that song. You're going to read the lyrics to that one, Stephen? Uh, no, I'm not oh, going to okay. read the lyrics to that. But uh, we can put up a YouTube link, and anybody who's over eighteen can uh, <laughs> uh, can can link to that. Um, but it's a kind of breakup song. Yep. Um, about separation from his wife. Uh, it's got a very catchy chorus that you couldn't play on the radio, but uh, it's the usual kind of crew. And this, we touched on this again before, particularly in the 74 episode. You have Bobby Keys, uh, Jim Price, Klaus Wurman, Peter Frampton, Nicky Hopkins. All of these guys are are part of that crew that are recording uh, with, with the Beatles on Beatles solo albums at this time. And uh, Harry, of course, wants this out as a single. Yes. And, um, you know, his, his record company aren't even keen on putting it on the uh, Well, we, we, should, we should, you know, maybe be a little less coy and say that the refrain is F you, you know, you're breaking yeah. my heart. So, you know, that's, that's yeah. you know, it's like, it's not like Paul's for you many years later. It's a totally no, different word altogether. It's a totally different word. <laughs> Altogether, and uh, you know, it's still a bit of a an, an eyebrow raiser in the early seventies to hear the the you know four letter expletive like that, but particularly in a song that's quite jolly and catchy a, and uh, this is, you know, straightforward uh, song, and that's the Harry dark humor again. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. You have a lovely catchy song. It's you know, you're breaking my heart. You know, would you expect <laughs> that next line to be, "Will you please come back to me, or don't leave me this way"? Or, but no, it's uh, F you. So yes, um, uh, um, but it's uh, yeah, it's. it's guarantee to pop up on some of Harry's greatest hits um, without a, a parental advisory sticker. But one of the interesting Harry George overlaps is uh, the song That Is All, which is not the most obvious uh, lift. And, you know, as I said at the start, the thread that runs through all this is that Harry is a Beatles super fan. He is paying attention yes. to what they are releasing and what they are uh, putting out. And, you know, kind of later on in his 70s career in 76, Harry covers the track That Is All, which is from Living in the Material World. It is. It's it's the last track on that album. It's a it, it's a it's a beautiful song, but it's mm. not a song I would think on you know, unless you were a sort of 
fan of deep cuts, you're not going, you're not going to know this track. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, I, I have to say, I prefer, I, I like George's version, but I really love Harry's version. I think the, the arrangement he, he does is just sublime. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, on, on living in the material world, it's the closing track of side two. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm not having a dig at George, but, uh, you know, I think, sometimes his songs do sound better when somebody else sings them. And yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with that. I mean, I think a lot of that album's Living in the Material World, we now talk for an hour about Living in the Material World. Um, <laughs> That's fine. A, a, a lot of issues with George's albums are frequently the sequencing. Yeah. You, you know, he, he records the songs and uh, I think sometimes the sequencing lets it down. And this is not an album closer really in no. the way that George delivers it. I don't think it's not, it's, it, it's not going to, it's not going to get noticed the way George does it and like where the, he places it. Like the other track I'm thinking of from living in the material world is try some, buy some, and you have Ronnie Spector's version, which is a great mm. version as yeah. well. And I, I sometimes, and here I go, George, I sometimes feel that he, uh, one of the reasons I regularly big up the early takes album is that George's vocals are kind of unthought. They're very natural. They're very, you know, spontaneous. Yeah. And sometimes I think he kind of gets into a studio voice and it doesn't uh, lift the song. But that is all when I, um, you know, when I went back to listen to Harry's version, because I hadn't uh, listened to that album. That's the way it is for a while. That's the, the Harry album it's from, from 1976. I was yeah. like, oh, this is a, this is a superb take. And he uses it to, interestingly, to bookend the album. It opens the album and then there's a refrain right at the end of the album. Um, yes. so, so it's obviously a song that meant a lot to him. It is, yes, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, as I say, I don't think it works as a closing song on George's album, but I think it just, it works perfectly the way Harry does it. Um, and it also got covered by Andy Williams. The fifth Beatle. The real fifth Beatle. The real fifth Beatle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, uh, yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't realized this, but um, Andy Williams uh, recorded this song. And uh, interestingly, he used that same group of people Session. to do it. Right. Yeah. Like Klaus Vorman, Nicky Hopkins, Jim Keltner was produced by Richard Perry. Uh, so this was, you know, just after or in between living in the material world and the Ringo album. So I think, I think Andy Williams on that basis, uh, you know, deserves a, a shout out. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever seen Andy Williams in concert? I have not. You're going to tell me you have. I saw Andy Williams twice in concert and it was great. I he have was no doubt. hilariously funny. <laughs> oh, really? I wouldn't he have was very, very funny, very okay. entertaining. Did not take himself seriously at all. We're going down some and very long side roads here. I was watching the Andy Williams show on YouTube a while back that because uh, it featured an early Steve Martin. Steve Martin used to be the comedy foil okay. on the Andy Williams show. Just kind of an odd variety. You know, these odd early 70s variety show on yeah, American TV. Yeah. They're quite strange. Well, uh, my favorite uh, thing about the Andy Williams show uh, that I saw, the second one, um, which is, you know, maybe only three or four years before he died. And as we were leaving, this elderly gentleman in, in the row behind put his hand on my shoulder and said, did, did you enjoy? Did you enjoy that? And I said, yes. And he said, it's great to see young people uh, getting into Andy's music. And I thought, ah, made my nights. <laughs> it's all uh, relative. It's, everything is relative. Everything um, is relative. So, um, so yeah, so, so George and Harry uh, uh, were close, but I think, you know, as I said, geography might have kept them from being a little bit closer. Um, let's look at Harry relationship with Paul um, because Harry and Paul um, to, they, they, they kind of become acquainted quite early Harry Harry appears with Paul in 1968 so when he does make that White Album visit you know Paul's very welcoming to him 
Yes, yes. And if you think about it, they, 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 uh, you know, he, he co- has covered She's Leaving Home, uh, his, his sense of melody, his sense of arrangement, or his sense of orchestration, all of those things put him firmly in, in sort of Paul's bailiwick, if you like. Um, yeah. one, one of the first things that Paul does, Paul is producing uh, Mary Hopkins' debut album for Apple, and he asks Harry, you know, write me a, write me a song for, for Mary Hopkins. And yeah. he does, uh, the puppy song. Yes. And, you know, it, 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 it's interesting you say that, you know, Harry's and Paul's Ballywick, because I'd agree with you there. I, th- I think in the arc of Harry's career, it's a pity he didn't work with Paul more because, you know, I know he was hanging out with Ringo and John and having the fun. But in terms of his technicals or his musical skills, he's really aligned with Paul. He's a studio whiz. He's deeply yes. melodic. He's he, he, he makes things look fantastically easy. You know, yeah, and you could kind of think, well, actually, Paul and Harry, that should have been something that worked really well together. But you know, Paul wasn't really plugged into the the whole Harry lifestyle party thing. I think, uh, you, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not having a dig at Paul, but um, <laughs> you, 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 <laughs> this is the way it's going to go. Um, yeah. I, yes, I think personality-wise, they're just not on the same page yeah. at all. And, you know, I'm not saying Paul doesn't have a sense of humor, but, you know. But you are. Paul, but, well, he doesn't have, <laughs> I think, that dark sense of humor, yes. that sort of uh, uh, sarcastic sense of humor that, you know, George and uh, John and perhaps to a lesser extent Ringo, but uh, Ringo is probably more about the partying. But I, well, I, I have just a sense with ha- Paul, Paul doesn't like to waste time. No. And, uh, you know, the others are pretty, you know, Lennon famously said, time you enjoy wasting is not wasted time. Yeah. Um, but Paul is, you know, he's here to, you know, making albums in Rockdown and all the rest. He's, he's going to get stuff done. It's interesting that the first thing he says to Harry is, give me a song. Yeah. You know, I have this project. Let's get to work. Give me a song. Uh, I say it's the puppy song. Um, I, I don't know. Is that, is that a deliberately kind of overly twee song that Harry delivers for Mary Hopkins? I have to admit, when I first started listening to Harry Nielsen, it was because I was a Monkees fan. And um, so I went after some of those early albums. Mm. And when I first listened to them, so this must be about 25 years ago, I did think they were twee. I thought, you know, I don't, I don't really get what's happening here. Yeah. And it took me about another 10 or 15 years to, for the penny to drop. And I, I guess it's another thing he does that's part of Paul's talent base, which is he kind of writes certain songs in this pre-rock and roll idiom, you know, it reaches back to the thirties and twenties, you know, songs about puppies and songs about, you know, railways and yeah, yeah, exactly. Railways. And, you know, kind of, you know, some of his songs have this air of somebody kind of strolling along with a a stick and a knotted handkerchief tied at the end of it over their (laughs) shoulder, you know, looking off, looking at a sunset. So he, you know, he's not governed by, you know, you know, the, the, the code that 1955 was when all good music started. And once you plug into that, uh, that he, he, he's kind of an all or nothing type of American songwriter and singer. Um, yeah. yeah, the stuff kind of opens up. And so you would have thought that would have tickled Paul. He would have listened to those early Harry albums and said, oh, here's a like mind. And, you know, here's a song about a puppy. Yeah, I can get behind that. You know, Paul yeah. wouldn't mind. And it's interesting that, that in the production for the Mary Hopkin album, he, Paul, double tracks uh, Mary yeah. Hopkins voice. So he's, he's kind of uh, a little bit of a nod to what Harry is doing. And uh, Mary Hopkin, huge fan. Uh, yes. I think she, she describes 
uh, Nilsson is my hero. And, uh, you know, I'd love to get Mary Hopkin to come on to the podcast, but she doesn't. Um, she doesn't do interviews, amazingly. She doesn't do interviews. Um, Active on Twitter, I'm, doesn't do interviews. Yeah. Which is um, nice. But I'm, I'm a huge uh, Mary Hopkin fan, particularly that kind of, not so much that first album, which is a little bit, trying to be all things to all men with a little bit show busy. Mm. Um, but she has an album called uh, Earth Song, Ocean Song, which I yeah. don't know if you've ever heard that. I, I think have I've heard of that. I've got all, have I've you? got the, I've got have the you Apple heard? albums box set. I'm, you know, plugged into, I'm down with the kids. Very good. It's a fantastic <laughs> album. And I would, I would say, good, yeah. I would say it's probably the best thing that came out on the Apple label. And I once did put that to Mary Hopkin on Twitter and she said, well, maybe if you exclude the boss's albums. Um, <laughs> That's enough. nice. Um, I mean, the first album postcard is good, but it is a McCartney exercise. And so if you're yes. interested in McCartney, uh, it's it's worth having a listen because he's basically A&Ring and producing and playing this this album for her. But Earth Song is kind of where she has her own kind of voice. Yeah. It is very good. But getting back to the matter in hand, one of the interesting stories was that, you know, when Harry arrives in town in 1968, you know, he does link up with Paul McCartney and there's a there's a jam session which is kind of curious this is this is an incredible thing i i i there's two slightly different uh versions of it uh one is that paul goes to harry's hotel and is just running through early drafts of 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 songs that he's written for the white album including a, a supposedly uh, Blackbird. Harry tells it that Paul came to his apartment, mm-hmm. um, but he does say it's on tape. He yeah. played four new songs he just written that ended up on three albums. She came in through the bathroom window, Teddy Boy, Blackbird, and one other, mm. which uh, he can't remember because we were drunk and harmonizing. Um, so there is a tape somewhere of Paul McCartney and Harry Nilsson singing these songs. Does yeah, now the question is, does it exist or is it just that there's a legend that there's a tape that exists? Well, Harry Harry does say uh, there is a tape. Um, okay. So, um, uh, you know, he actually does say, we did have a jam session one night at my apartment. That's on tape. And um, the other reference I've, I've heard to this is uh, Zach Nilsson. Yeah, now we who, should talk about Zach Nilsson a little bit yeah. because he has been a very visible online presence and custodian of Harry's, uh, he's one of Harry's sons and yeah. he's been looking after Harry's history and archive and, and representation really. But sadly, Zach is quite ill at the moment. He he is quite seriously ill and uh, I, I've been following his posts on social media and Facebook and, uh, you, you know, I think the prognosis there is not good and yeah he's been pretty open kind of, about a terminal cancer diagnosis that yes he's dealing with at yes the moment, and which we send him all of, our good wishes and yeah wish all the best um but he he posted in february of last year that uh he had got a letter from paul saying uh you know basically just the same thing wishing him all the best and and uh th- this led on to an interview and um the interviewer said, you know, have you and Paul ever met? And he said, no, no, Harry always wanted us to meet, but it just never happened. But Paul knew of me. He hung out with Harry and my mom, Diane. And then he says, there is a recording of Paul playing Blackbird for Harry and my mom with Linda in a hotel room before the White Album was released. Harry was harmonizing along. So Paul knew of me when I was born. I suppose there's a possibility we met when I was a baby. So that raises the prospect. Has is has he heard the tape or has he just heard of the tape? Yes, you'd wonder. Or, you know, is it is it a legend that that 
sort of grows yeah. slightly in the telling. He's heard a legend that there's a tape, so there must be a tape. Um, we, we just don't know, but it's tantalizing. Yeah. It just is that that prospect. But then again, you think, is this just going to be one of those sessions where he was drunk, Paul was drunk, everybody was <laughs> drunk? Uh, but still, you still want to hear it. You still want to hear it. You still want to hear it. I mean, he, he published the letter that Paul sent him and he was very touched by it. And I, just as a side point, it is a, it's just such a, very sweet and lovely thing that Paul did. He And he said in the letter, I was privileged to know your dad, who was a lovely guy. And I wish you the best of luck with all your treatment. And, um, you know, my wife, Nancy, went through it years ago and she stuck with it, even though she hated it. She's now better and well. But unfortunately, she's married to me, sending you the best wishes, Paul. And, yeah. you know, it's just a mark of the guy. It's very sweet. It's um, very sweet. Uh, you know, to do something for for that, for someone who's, who's in that situation. Um, but yeah, Paul and Harry don't really develop a, a very deep um, working relationship. And again, this story of meeting in the hotel room in 68, it's classic Paul, where we're not going to get drunk. We're going to sing songs yes. and get drunk. And we're going to go yeah. through our songbooks and get drunk. So there's always a little bit of, of work involved. Um, but Paul and Harry do cross paths later on, and we'll come back to that uh, later on. But as we said earlier on, it's kind of with Ringo and John that Harry forms the strongest bonds. And we're going to talk about that right after this break. End of part one. Intermission. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So it was with Ringo Starr that Harry was really you know, closest to, and Ringo describes Harry as my best friend uh, at one point. Um, they, they grow close, first of all, when Harry's in London, isn't that right? Yes. So, you know, Harry stays in London. He does some recording in London. And this is where he he starts accumulating the uh, the characters around him, uh, like uh, Ringo and Keith Moon, Mark Boland, Graham Chapman from Monty Python. Um that would be a good party, do you think? <laughs> well, I wouldn't pay the bar tab, but yes. No, no. You'd like to kind of look in through the window at that party. But, uh, I do sometimes feel when you read these stories, uh, I think, you know, when you're young, you think, oh, that would have been great fun. Now that I'm old, I'm like, oh my God, I would have, if I'd seen what they were up to, I would have just left and gone somewhere I, else. <laughs> I, well, my, yeah, well, at my age, all I can think of, what must they have felt like the next day? Yeah, that's, well, that's, 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 they kept know. it going the next day. That was the problem. They, I think I think their, their response was, yes, just keep going. Just don't yeah. stop. And, and uh, um, but yeah, he he seems to have been closest with Ringo for the longest yes. period. Um, yeah. 
so it's 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 a very deep friendship they work together on Ringo's solo albums so uh, you've got Ringo in 1973, Goodnight Vienna, Rotogravure, all the way up to Stop and Smell the Roses. And I'm sure you'll want to talk about that album for several hours <sighs> when we get there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, we talked on the episode where we looked at the Ringo album about uh, your 16 yes. and the vocal arrangement. And if you if you take, you know, it's almost a Harry Nilsson track because all of the vocal arrangements on that, it's all sung by Harry. And then Ringo comes and puts his vocal over the top and um, try listening to it. I'm going to say try listening to Ringo Star song <laughs> and ignore Ringo's vocals. But um, it's a great song and I love that album and it's fantastic. But you really want to listen to that track to, to appreciate what Harry brings to the table there. Yeah, there's, you know, there's a couple of overlaps with things we've talked about before. So if you go back and listen to our 1974 episode and our films of Ringo Starr episode, there's plenty of Ringo and Harry Nielsen uh, information in there. But um, yeah, for the Goodnight Vienna album, there's a very famous advert, which Harry is in as well, where... And it's hard to believe that stimulants might have been involved, but Ringo as a spaceman is flown to the top of the Capitol Tower in L.A. and yes. is waving at the population below from the roof. I mean, I, I shudder to think of the insurance of putting a beetle on top of <laughs> yes, a skyscraper. Yes. But uh, Harry is also there on the roof as well, kind of wandering around in his well, game or in the background. He, he's sitting in a deck chair. Yes. Reading news, news, you know, the album, the, the, the video for Only You, he's, he's sitting in a deck chair in a bathrobe reading a newspaper. Yes. So it's just, why not? And there's also, Ringo repays the debt to Harry because Ringo appears in a, an ad for a Harry album. Have you seen this one? I think it's a, there's a do it, do it on Monday, do it on Monday. Do it, uh, yeah. Yeah, where um, Harry shoots, Harry was a keen basketball player. And if you haven't seen this ad, Harry is, I think, on the, the floor where the LA Lakers play. And he just lobs a basketball from one end of the court straight into the basket at the other end of the court. And Ringo's in the audience applauding. He's the only person in the audience. It's really, <laughs> really quite funny. But they were thick as thieves. They just yeah, loved each they, other. They, 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 they really were. And um, it, it kind of just that, I think that those two videos you've described kind of sums up their relationship and where they were yeah. in the 70s. And if you're, you know, great pals, you've got access to all the money in the world, why wouldn't you just do those crazy things, you know? And we talked in the in the uh, in the films of Ringo Starr episode that obviously Harry and uh, Ringo starred together in Son of Dracula. And I know that since we've done that episode, you've been uh, down in the British Library or somewhere just digging uh, yes, out more facts. Yes. But um, I mean, I started learned? off these notes by saying, you know, a, a list of Harry's achievements and saying, you know, and he starred in the worst Dracula movie ever. But then I thought, is it though? Is it really <laughs> the worst Dracula movie uh, ever? Um, but, you know, I, I, a friend of mine uh, very kindly got me a copy of that movie, a decent copy on DVD for Christmas. Um, thanks, Robert. Uh, and I've really come to, I've watched it, I think, three times since Christmas. We're now recording in February. <laughs> <laughs> I've been sending away for uh, uh, an old back issue of Shindig and reading articles about it. And uh, the more I think about it, this is, this is, this is, We've got to start petitioning Ringo to get this. But the, um, they get this this movie back out there. But the Shindig magazine article does confirm that there is an alternate soundtrack, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, so uh, the, the the film sort of opened and closed literally in one day, and uh, Ringo took it away and. Um, 
uh, you know, got Graham Chapman and Douglas Adams from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to to work up a an alternative dialogue in the style of What's Up, Tiger Lily, the uh, the Woody Allen film. Mm. And yeah, this apparently does exist. And uh, I haven't heard it, but there's a bootleg copy because Harry screened the movie with the alternative um, soundtrack at a Beatles Beatle Fest. Fest. Yeah, Beatles Fest. Yeah. Um, and so Ringo is... Uh, you know, I've never really seen Ringo interviewed in recent years, particularly about Harry Nielsen. There was a, a Harry Nielsen documentary that came out a few years ago mm. called uh, Who is Harry Nielsen and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? Which yeah. is worth uh, seeking out. It's uh, But Ringo it's is not yeah. really, he's not visible in that in any contemporaneous interviews. And there's interviews with everybody in that except Ringo. I I wonder is Ringo just is is it just a very emotional I think it is. I think he's an emotional guy and it's it's very raw. He did write a song on the album Liverpool Eight about Harry uh, called just Harry's that. Song. Yeah, and it's 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 a beautiful song and uh, you know Liverpool Eight I have to say is just another Ringo star album. Yes. Um but Harry's song just Not the Clannet is... song we should point out. <laughs> no, Harry's theme is that Harry's, Harry's theme? theme. Yeah, Harry's theme. I'm sorry, Clavett, so I'm th- oh dear. With the vocals on that, anyway. Um, uh, sorry, you completely throw me now. Yeah, Harry's yeah. Harry's song. Um, and he he just he says, all I need is my imagination. Take me far away, where I can be with everyone who loves me. Can we get back the past? Oh, and, and it's very kind of ex explicitly just looking back on those times he had with Harry. And it's, it's, it's in a way, I'm, I'm not comparing the two relationships, but it's a much more explicitly sort of open and touching song about a deceased friend than, yeah. than anything he's done for John. You know, his references to John and songs are sort of slightly oblique. Um, but this is a, you really do feel he's kind of laying everything out on the page here, you know? Yeah. Um, so Harry and Ringo's uh, friendship is very true, but also uh, Harry and John, we know, is, is is another relationship altogether. And when we bring John Lennon and Harry together, you know, we start to look at there. There's, there's, they wrote songs together, they made albums together, and uh, you know, he's he's uh, a, a key part in what's euphemistically known as John's. Last weekend, um, yes. Harry and John originally bonded again in that '68 period when he comes over for the White Album. Yes, this was this was something that was a piece of information that was new to me. But this is from the the Beatles Bible site, and uh, it, it recounts that. Uh, during the White Album session, they John and Harry sort of challenged each other to write a song with the same title. Um, and You Are Here was the title from an art exhibition that John had held uh, at the Robert Fraser Gallery in July of 68, um, with Yoko sort of one of their first things together. And that was suggest- John suggested You Are Here as the title. Um, there's a song by that title pops up on Lennon's 73 Mind Games album. Uh, Harry recorded a demo uh, but uh, didn't you know didn't take it any further? But it, it turns up on a box set uh, that we maybe talk about at some point. Um, yeah, turns up in twenty thirteen. Yeah, yeah, that, that and, and that was actually um, that that demo was discovered during the making of the documentary you you referenced. And similarly, you know, when we talked about Harry covering George Harrison, you know, in March seventy one he records a version of Lennon's Isolation from Plastic Ono Band. So again, he's a super fan, you know, four months after the album comes out, he's recording a very sincere, heartfelt uh, cover version. So he's really paying attention to what they're doing and 
you know, is picking out songs that suit him for him to cover. It's and again, the the content, the sort of emotional content of that song is is right on message for Harry. Yeah, and uh, it, all roads lead then to 1974, and it's when John is based in LA that Harry base you know becomes a very fast friend to John Lennon, and Harry's also part of this group you know, the Hollywood vampires, which, yes, uh, which is, uh, you know, Mickey Dolenz from the monkeys, Alice Cooper, Harry Nielsen, plus or minus John Lennon when he's in town. And they are just a group of, um, uh, again, you could say uh, rock and roll characters slash bores. Yes. Drunks, (laughs) drunks, drunks, depending what side of the fence you're on. Yeah. Well, you know, Ringo would say, yes, this is the point at which they stop being musicians that, drank and they became drunks that occasionally played music you know this is this is the um so yeah it, it seems to be just a relocation of that early 70s london scene yeah. is transposed and then and, and you've got some la characters uh join in for larks yes and so march 74 is when the famous smothers brothers incident happens Yes. So again, there's a bit of an overlap with the 74 episode here. Um, but but uh, essentially, at one point, they're they're sharing a house together, they're recording together, they're going out socializing together. Um, uh, May Pang says, you know, uh, Harry would keep feeding John drinks until it all went horribly wrong. And the Smothers Brothers incident with them, this was in March of 74. Mm. The Smothers Brothers um, were sort of U.S., but they had a kind of, I suppose it was almost like a variety show uh, that they had. Their comics. It's, it seems hard looking. Mike and, Mike and Bernie Winters, you know. It seems hard looking at the Smothers Brothers now that they were seen as uh, subversive, yeah. very popular with, you know, the sort of late 60s liberal politics. Uh, yeah. George had appeared on a Smothers Brothers show as a surprise guest in late 68 when he was visiting, you know, pre-White Album release when he was visiting LA. So they were very sort of, you know, uh, popular with kind of the liberal politics of the time. And, uh, you know, they they kept in that uh, loop. Um, so, you know, when, when they'd be playing gigs at the Troubadour, they weren't your standard variety uh, type of show. They would attract, you know, your John Lennon's and your Troubadour type style. So, and even still, they were quite, they were quite, um, you know, when they recount the incident after the fact, they were quite forgiving about it, really. They, they, they were. So this, this seems to have been a sort of a comeback show for them, or they were sort of a relaunch. And, uh, you know, they're doing their stand-up routine and uh, they recount the fact that during the routine, they, they, they start to become aware of somebody shouting and, uh, you, you know, sort of language involved and, and it was getting quite rowdy and people were, um, there were the arguments between people on, on tables. And um, then there was a scuffle, the show was stopped. Lennon was ejected, uh, but as you say, they're very forgiving, and they say, "Oh, you know, he sent flowers the next day, and everything was everything was fine." But this is the point at which, you know, a waitress alleged that she was hit uh, during the fracas. There was a a valet attendant suggested the same. There was a photographer, um, and it's interesting that that Lennon subsequently does point the finger at Harry. You know, May Pang <laughs> says Harry is the one. You know, John. Everybody knows what John is like. You need to kind of keep an eye on him. Harry would just egg him on, would keep feeding him drink. And um, I'm sure everybody's seen that Old Grey Bissell Test interview from yes, 1975. Yes. So he alludes to this and and he sort of says, you know, well, look, 
yeah, you know, I was with Harry. He encouraged me. I usually have someone that says, okay, don't. And then he says, but you know what? I did this in Liverpool um, before I was famous. It's just now that I'm famous, it gets in the papers and people people sue me. But he's very clear. Um, and I think there is another interview later, maybe on the Tom Snyder show, mm-hmm. where he very specifically says it was Harry Nilsson. And it's <laughs> a little bit more accusatory than he is on the on the whistle test, you know. But that was then. The big project, though, that they're heading towards is, you know, what do you do when you've got a house with Harry Nilsson and John Lennon in it is you make an album and the album is Harry Nielsen's 10th album, which is called Pussycats, which is kind of a half covers, half originals album produced by Lennon in starting at the end of March and into April, 1974. And, uh, you know, it's all kicking off at that point on the first day of recording. That's the famous day that McCartney shows up at the house. And that's the the toot and the snore bootleg where, yes. uh, as we've recounted before, Paul appears the next day and Harry says, Paul, would you like to try some of this? And Paul says, what is it? And Harry says, it's horse tranquilizer. And Paul says, no, uh, I don't think that's a good idea. And Harry's like, okay, all the more horse tranquilizer for Harry. But that's well, again, on- again, this illustrates Paul, Harry, not really on the same page. You not know. really, no. Paul, Paul turns up at a recording session expecting recording to get done and it doesn't yep. happen. And and the party takes over instead. Um, but yeah, on that day uh, that Paul turns up at the house uh, for his last interaction with um, uh, uh, John Lennon in a studio, that's the first day of recording of Harry's album, uh, Pussycats. They record Subterranean Homesick Blues on day one. And on the next day, the 29th, they record the album's opening track, Many Rivers to Cross. Pussycats as an album is... I, I I don't know if it's any good. I can't decide. You don't like it at all? Well, you know, considering how much I love some of Harry's other music, um, you know, I could imagine as... You know, if 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 uh, if I'd uh, if I'd been on the earth in uh, March '74, if I'd heard that uh, Harry Nilsson and John Lennon were uh, recording an album, I'd be like, I cannot wait to hear this. Yes, fantastic. And it kind of comes to that thing we've talked about earlier on, which is you know, you, you know, Harry and Paul as a melodic studio combo. Wow, but Harry and John, hmm, and I, it doesn't it doesn't add up to the sum of its promise of its of its key talents when you think about what they've done already i i i think that i think that's fair comment i mean i i certainly wouldn't rate it as one of harry's best albums but it is an album that i think contains tracks uh individual moments which i i i think are fantastic um but they both at this stage uh, were at low points i suppose You, you know john was taking on this project specifically because um he felt he was wasting time. He was, you know, he'd, he'd been working with Phil Spector. It wasn't going anywhere. He became very aware of the fact that he was making headlines for all the wrong reasons. Um, this was a project that he could uh, take on to sort of pull himself out without the responsibility of delivering product under his own name. Nilsson uh, at this stage doesn't have the original material. You know, he doesn't have uh, original songs available and ready to go. So it falls back into that. Oh, let's do some cover versions, which is what John has been doing. Um, 
And can I can I mention the uh, who who peed on the mixing desk uh, that that letter? If you must, <laughs> if you must. This is the this is sort of indicative of of the way they were working. So this was a few years ago. Rolling Stone reported on a letter that John wrote to Phil Spector, blaming Keith Moon and Harry Nilsson for peeing on a recording console, um, uh, and basically saying, "Should you?" Not yet. No, it was Harry and Keith who pissed on the console. I can't be expected to mind adult rock stars, nor can May. Besides, she works for me, not AM. I'm about to piss off to the record plant because of this. So <laughs> John is, is trying to keep Harry Nilsson, Ringo Starr, Keith Moon under control. So yeah. it's not ideal, not ideal circumstances, shall we say. Um, no, um, but they, they spend April 74 mainly putting this album together and uh, you know tell me what you don't like it's his voice you don't like it's a voice we should talk about the the famous story which is that um you know harry's voice changes uh during this album and you know his voice is not the same afterwards and what previously you know just a year before he's he's doing a a touch of schmielsen in the night his you know, yep. covers album with an orchestra and there is a BBC performance of that album, which is extraordinary to watch where he just, this orchestra starts up, Harry saunters into the room and hits, you know, uh, you must remember this on cue, on note, sings it yeah. beautifully. And if memory serves, he's either holding a drink or a cigarette or something like total nonchalance. Um, but you get to Uh, 1974 and he's recording with Lennon at the desk and the legend goes that in order to hit the power of many rivers to cross he is singing through uh, throat nodule problems and he causes irreparable damage to his singing voice and people you know amateur rock and roll psychologists have said you know was he you know too drunk to care was he showing off to Lennon did he not want to let the side down you know why this happened we don't really know, but it makes many rivers to cross, uh, you know, not a um, not an, an easy e- listen. For anybody that came to Nelson through yep. Without You or a Little Touch of Schmilson in the Night, you know, this is this is not easy listening. But do you not think it sounds like John Lennon? It sounds like John Lennon. It sounds, you know, the the, the strings are the those number nine dream strings. You know, it's, no, it's kind mean, of got but you mean the, the, the vocally the vocal. I mean, vocally, he sounds like Lennon on Mother or one of those. Yes, towards the end al- of the song, he does. Yeah, yeah, it's almost as if he's aping what Lennon was doing on on. You know, this is therapy, Lennon. This is this is uh, um, what he's doing. Um, so in that sense, it's very jarring to move yeah. from, you know, the year before and on, on Goodnight Vienna, he's he's doing these beautiful sort of vocal arrangements for Ringo. And now he is just screaming this vocal. Yeah, it's I mean, the, it, it's also, you know, this notion of how albums get sequenced or how they, you know, how they appear and, you know, the first to open the album with that song instead of, you know, there are one or two very gentle, delicate Nielsen moments on the yes. album, um, you know, but to open with that song, it's a bit of an assault. And, you know, I, I don't reach for Pussycats often as a, as an album of, 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 of comfort. And I know not every piece of music is supposed to make you feel comfortable, but yeah. y- you know, you kind of feel this isn't, 
this doesn't sound well you know it's it's it, uh, it, it's it's it, it sounds like uh, i mean there's that and there's save the last dance for me and they sound as if they were recorded at the end of a really intensive kind of 18 month world tour of, you know, <laughs> yes. where you, you know, um, it, it just, it sounds like a really road weary voice. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not the album. I mean, I, I can't defend it. You know, there's some terrible uh, sort of childish nonsense mm-hmm. uh, in there, but there are some, some beautiful moments, but I think it does mark, mark the point at which Harry's voice changes sort of irreparably. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's sort of kind of a certain watermark for Harry. I mean, yeah, the highlights in the album are, uh, you know, all my life is a lovely, gentle Harry original. Um, Black Sails is another great song, but yes. Lennon's actually got nothing to do with Black Sails. It's recorded about a month or two after the album itself. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, you're not a big fan of Rock Around the Clock? No, no it's, that, that's, I mean, that's, you know, I always talk- worry if, if an album sounds like it was more fun to make than to listen to, that's a problem. I've, I've talked to you before about the uh, Keith Moon solo album. That's the, that's Two exactly. Two sides of the moon, or both sides uh, yeah, of the moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's shocking. Um, <laughs> and again, <laughs> arrives from sort of the same, uh, the same. Part. But but it is as he one of the people that was hanging around in LA that doesn't seem to have got caught up in in the mayhem and the madness was uh, Jimmy Webb. Oh yeah. Um, you know, great, fantastically talented songwriter, and he comments. Um, uh, about the fact that you know this is Harry began to dismantle his genius, you know, to systematically yeah. destroy his own talent. This jewel that was, you know, this blessing from God, and his voice is just disappearing. And uh, again, there is, you said, you know, there is a kind of psychology about it. Um, Jimmy Webb tells a great story about Harry and John after that Smothers Brothers show turning up at his door and saying, "We were with you." <laughs> we need you to go down to the. We need you to go down to the police station and tell, tell uh, you know, tell the police that uh, you are our alibi. And amazingly, Jimmy Webb does it. Fair play to him. <laughs> Fair play to him. But uh, you know, this is this is. There were friends of Harry's who were extremely concerned at this point that he was just uh, squandering the talent, and it was almost it was it was deliberate. Like in in terms of the timeline, you know, we're, we're kind of zoning in on Harry and the Beatles. But, you know, Harry has had this successful solo career after his debut album comes out at the end of 67. You know, the two songs he's known uh, most for is mm. Everybody's Talking, which was written by Fred Neal, and Without yeah. You, which was written by Hammond Evans from, from Badfinger. And these were two massive hits. Uh, Everybody's Talking was the first one from the Midnight Cowboy movie. And uh, then that brings him into the realm of uh, Richard Perry as a producer who produces his breakthrough album, Nielsen Schmilson, which everybody, uh, I assume, listening to this owns a copy. If you don't own a copy of Nielsen Schmilson, it's perfect. And Nielsen yeah. Schmilson should have been the template for how Harry rolled out across the 70s because it's an album that keeps giving to us many years later. Sound Like Gotta Get Up has featured in the Netflix show uh, Russian Doll. Uh, Jump to the Fire is a song that many bands keep re- rediscovering, like LCD Sound System have done a fantastic cover of it. Uh, Coconut is is on Nielsen Schmilson and obviously um, uh, Quentin Tarantino used yep. Coconut in Reservoir Dogs. So that was the big hit album. But Harry being Harry, you know, didn't tour it, didn't bring it anywhere. Uh, at, at best, he, he did this BBC One TV special, which is a great thing to have in the archives. But this is how he's spending his 1970, 71, 72 
that instead of capitalizing on this, he is not touring. He is enjoying the lifestyle more. And it all seems to come to a head with Pussycats, where, you know, there's a line in his career of before Pussycats and after Pussycats. I think I think that's fair enough. I think that's a that that's fair comment. Uh, there there is a a fantastically revisionist uh, review and pitchfork of, of <laughs> yes. Cats. You sent this to me, and uh, it, you know I took three or four hours out to read it because it was a pitchfork review, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. It was time well spent. <laughs> um, but but you know I think although they they identify and they do sing its praises, I think they they do recognise that there are you know, irredeemable failures in there. But I thought that the final um, line of that, uh, where they describe him as being the drunk, the drinking buddy of every rock star, and they say picture book drunkards like Harry live their lives in cheerful, elegant gestures of failure and small pain declarations of success. Pussycats contained a little of both. Yeah. I think that I thought, as Pitchfork reviews do, that just, you know, summed it up. Once you once you plow through the fifty pages, you get the you get the the the, the key. And I, I I think that probably describes his uh, career from, and his life from here on in. But yeah. you know, at this point, he's hanging out with John Lennon. He's writing songs with John Lennon. You yeah. know, he'd uh, say he's having a great time. Yeah. Um, so there's two interesting things that that that, that lead out from Pussycats, uh, which is the songwriting and the album cover. So from the songwriting point of view. Harry does write with John. And yeah. uh, so there's two songs of note. One is on Pussycats, there's Mucho Mungo slash Mount Elga, which is really just a John song welded to a Harry song. That's that's pretty much it. Uh, Mucho Mungo was a song that uh, John originally sort of wrote with Phil Spector during uh, the rock and roll sessions. Um, he there's, the, there's a version of that on the anthology Box the Lennon anthology. Yeah, uh, Box and Lennon records a couple of uh, home demos. Uh, supposedly, he wrote it with Jesse Ed Davis. We've talked about before, mm-hmm. uh, and there is a cassette tape uh, that I've seen a photograph of with with you know him Lennon's writing. This is you know for Jesse uh, Davis, but um, he played it to Harry. Harry liked it. He didn't like the Phil Spector bits. I think that was maybe a diplomatic not liking the <laughs> Phil Spector bit. And they kind of put two songs together and um, but they dropped uh, I like the line that they dropped sailing on the good ship lollipop open a drugstore a nice kind of shop so <laughs> um, but yeah so uh, the, he, he he suddenly you know this is the Beatles super fan has a co-writing credit with uh, John Lennon well the other song they write together is a, you know perhaps a bit more substantive or a bit yeah. less welded together and that's a reasonably well known song called Old Dirt Road which um, you know is a song born of 1974 and it first appears on John's uh, Walls and Bridges album and there's a couple of different variants of this because Harry eventually records it himself in 1980 um, on his album Flash Harry Um, do you have a favourite version Stephen? I like the stripped back uh, versions that you get on Men Love Avenue or Anthology, I think probably the Men Love Avenue, Lennon's kind of stripped back take on that. We, again, we've touched on this. Walls and Bridges, there's a lot of people love Walls and Bridges, but I just find it very difficult to get past that really dense um, kitchen sink production. Well, I, I'd agree with you. I think the, you know, the version of Old Dirt Road that Harry puts out in 1980, you know, um, you know, f- from the room next door, it sounds very similar to the John version, but when you listen yeah. to Harry's voice, by 1980, it's not 
uh, it's not a it's not pretty, and it's no. not a great cover version. The version of Old Dirt Road I like from the '98 Lennon anthology is great. It doesn't have yeah. that uh, walls and bridges fog on it, so to speak. And yeah, yeah, you know, given what we heard with "Give Me Some Truth," I'm looking forward to the walls and bridges I six disc go, deluxe gonna, remix remastered. I was going to say I was I I that was it was the couple of tracks from uh, Walls and Bridges that really sold out to me. I have to say. Um. So. Uh, so. So. So that's their their rewrite. But what I find deeply. Uh, amusing slash cynical is that John Lennon is on the cover of Pussycats because you always put your producer on the cover yes, of your album of course, uh, with of course. their name as big or bigger than yours. Why would you do yes. that? Um, sales, cynicism, sales, you know, sales, money. Yeah, mm. it was a lark. It was a joke. <laughs> they were they were Batman and Robin. They were a team. Well, again, you know, you'd look at that cover and you think, hey, that's John Lennon from the Beatles. And that's Harry Nielsen who had that big hit a year or two ago. And they've got an album together and it looks fantastic. There, there's a clue on the album cover, though, that all is not what it seems. There is. There is. So originally the album was supposed to be called Strange Pussies, but the, uh, the record company wasn't having yeah. it. Um, stronger heads prevailed. Stronger heads prevailed. So, um, but yes, the, the, the people who don't know the cover, it's sort of Harry and John as little kind of, are they like teddy bears or something? They're kind of poking um, their heads through a scene. Yeah. It's like a cartoony scene. And there's a table and there's a rug on the floor and there's a building blocks with letters on it and there's a D and then there's a rug and then there's an S. So it spells rugs. You see see what they did there? I have to admit, I I love a good rebus. I did not. (laughs) I had never heard of that name. That was my, you know, did you know that? Um, Uh, that, Yeah, of course. Everyone knows what a rebus uh, is. A rebus is a puzzle that's a mixture of letters and drawings, listeners. So that's a rebus. Uh, Ian Rankin, Inspector Rebus. That's who I was thinking <laughs> right. of. But, uh, yeah. So yeah, it's it's. I'll, it's into, I'll ask I'll ask Ian Rankin on Twitter if uh, that that's where he got that. That's the, where yeah. Rebus comes from. So yeah. So but it, it, Lennon is on the cover, and you know this album comes out in '74, and it's Nielsen's tenth album on RCA. So yeah. since Pandemonium Shadow Show back in '67, '74. Well this is thank you. This is album number ten, and. It seems to be that Lennon is being used as leverage for Harry's record contract. And also, you know, Harry is being used as leverage for RCA to get to Lennon, perhaps. Yeah, I I, I think there's a there's a there's a trade off here. Everybody's playing everybody. Um, But principally, I think John and Harry are in it together. Mm. Um, You know, there was a lot of speculation in 74, 75, the Beatles contracts are coming to an end. Are they going to re-sign with EMI and Capital? Uh, are they, you know, going to move to other companies? So um, I, I think undoubtedly the cover is one to sell records because you think is this a, is this a Harry Nilsson John Lennon duets album? Yeah, I think that would have. I think that would have been an interesting, that would have been uh, a better project. Yeah, I think, that, you know, but presumably because John is contracted to to Capital EMI at that point, that's that's not a runner. So they're they're they're. First of all, to sell the record, and secondly, to sell Harry. Hmm. Um, so the story is that uh, in renegotiating that contract, John goes with Harry. You know, like taking your mum along, your dad along to to to, um, and he sits in and he kind of is dropping hints that if RCA play right by Harry, well, when his record contract uh, comes to, comes up for renewal, he might just sign with RCA as well. Yeah, yeah, and Harry gets. Five million dollars. The, the, the uh, Harry Nielsen um, is 
when you look at his body of work, it is indicative as to how much money was floating around the music industry at the time that he managed to make 10 records in seven years, get a five million contract and live uh, live well and comfortably off without ever it's, touring. And, uh, you know, really only having one significant breakthrough album, which I, is I, Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that's the thing. If you had one big album like that, th- those mm. were the days when uh, record companies tended to stick with you for a while, uh, you know, to, to, to give you another shot. Um, but I think undoubtedly the five million was really, I, I suspect, regarded as a down payment on Lennon's. Lennon, which never yeah. came to pass. Which, yeah. So 1974 and Pussycats is probably the high watermark of Harry Nilsson uh, interacting with the Beatles when he shares an album sleeve and writing credits uh, with John Lennon. Beyond 1974-75, everybody kind of takes a uh, takes things a little bit more easy. Um, you know, John retreats into his house husband mode, as we know, in the second half of the 70s. You know, George goes into Friar Park mode in the second half of the 70s. Paul was never really going to keep Harry on speed dial. No. Um, and if we kind of look at Harry uh, as we tip into the 1980s, it's, it's a different type of interaction uh, that he has. So as you say, he's working on Stop and Smell the Roses with Ringo when we get to the 80s. Uh, but yeah. the big thing that, that affects Harry is the murder of John in December 1980. Yes, that seems to have been uh, you know, a turning point. And it does seem that in, in the sort of couple of years before 1980, perhaps he and John weren't hanging out Mm. so much. There wasn't as much contact. You know, John was in the house husband years. But this this seems to have sort of galvanized uh, Harry in a way. Um, he he was not regarded as being a particularly kind of politically active. You know, you know Lennon went through his political phase. Uh, but But... After Lennon's murder, Harry takes up the cause of uh, gun control in, mm. in America and really kind of throws himself into that. Um, and, uh, you know, the music is is his career at this stage. You know, he, he has that album Flash Harry in 1980 that, that you mentioned. Ringo appears on that, um, but he's not recording. Uh, the, he, he records... Drumming is my madness. He writes that for Ringo on in, in Stop It Smell the Smell the Roses. Yeah. Um, but he's 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 not producing a lot of material on his own account. Yeah, he's left RCA Records at this point, yeah. and Flash Harry is not an RCA album. And and Flash Harry actually opens with a song written and performed by Eric Idle, which is an odd conceit, you know. Yeah, uh, and it's a song about Harry Nielsen, written yeah. in that jaunty Eric Idle. Uh, you know, end of the pier style. Um, but the album also has Harry's very sincere reading of Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. It's an odd album, Flash Harry, to say the least. Because it's a sort of, that's almost a sort of sign off. You know, his yeah. his voice is shot. Uh, he's writing material. He, he's drum- writing material for a Popeye film as well at the same time. Robert Altman's yes. Popeye. Yes. Uh, not, a hit, not a great hit, that film, as I recall. I was a very tiny child and I was brought to that film. And I remember being quite bamboozled about <laughs> everything that was going on. This was not a five minute cartoon. This was no. some kind of odd bonfire of money <laughs> you were never you were never quite the same no again. it explains a um, lot actually yeah uh, the, the, the also uh, my favorite com- uh, collaboration with Ringo here is on the song how long can disco on you see what they did there how long can disco on yes 
This we was should... the level that they were, <laughs> uh, which they were operating at this point. Well, if you do want to talk about drumming is my madness for a second, because Please do. I know, I know how much you love this. Uh, Drumming is My Madness is a Ringo song that is simultaneously the greatest and the worst Ringo song ever. It's extraordinary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's 11 years since, you know, or 10 years since the Beatles ended by the time he's putting it down onto tape. Mm-hmm. And he's singing repeatedly, drumming is my madness, drumming is my weakness. And then at one point he says, let me now riz off. And he does a very sort of tepid drum solo. And it's very nicely arranged and produced in Harry's defense, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, you can't help but feel how the mighty have, uh, have fallen it, when it, you hear it, drumming is my it, madness. It is indicative. I mean, it really is indicative of that, of that slide, you know, yeah. um, uh, and going into the eighties, uh, you know, he's not producing a lot of music. You can see Ringo, what happens to his career yeah. um, in, in the 80s. Um, but he he does, Harry Nilsson does throw himself into gun control. And he, he develops then this relationship with Yoko. Yes, and that's um, very sweet. He writes to Yoko at the end of 81 and, you know, you know, is very heartfelt about how he feels about the whole situation. And he goes off to record some Yoko songs then in 1982. He does. He, he, he writes um, to Yoko and come up, I just read that out. Uh, he says, uh, this was at the end of 81 and he, he writes, Dear Bag of Laughs, mm-hmm. now that we're both in our 40s, I guess it's okay to talk straight. John and I once had a great Yoko versus Una debate, Una being. Una being Harry's, Harry's amazing wife who pops up in that documentary who yes. Harry was devoted to yep. from the time he first met her about 1972 uh, until he, his death in 1994. She's and, and if you watch the documentary, she is hugely entertaining. She's an Irish lady, which obviously helps uh, adds to the uh, charm. But she's, uh, yeah, Una, 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 Harry's wife is, is, is fascinating. So he writes, uh, John said, you were the blues. And I said what I could then I got to thinking about Harry's fourth law, which clearly states that the brighter the light, the more likely it is to be extinguished. And you think that's a lovely sort of thing to write and, and, and you know, particularly... Yeah, he, he does mean it. Yeah. And, you know, again, if you, if you kind of think the majority of the time where, where Harry was closest to John is when John was not with... Yoko. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he does record Yoko songs in 1982, and these eventually appear uh, in various places, but predominantly yeah. on a, an early 80s Yoko tribute album, Every Man Has a Woman. Yes. Have you got that album? Uh, no. I've, I've, heard, I've, I've heard it in bits and pieces. I know Costello's on it. Yeah, I've got his version say, of, of yeah. Walking on Thin Ice. I, I'm aware of that, but I don't, I've never heard the whole thing. It is. I mean, it is. It's an interest. It is an interesting. Uh, it's a very interesting album, and it's the sort of the first attempt, I think, to uh, sort of recast Yoko slightly. Yeah. Um, I think it's too early in in uh, her career, or too too close to John's death, really, to do that. But um, yeah, then he he also records uh, "Never Say Goodbye," which turns up on a sort of 1993 album and Listen, The Snow Is Falling, which was the mm. B-side of Happy Christmas. Uh, and that finally came out in 2019 on Lost and Found, which was a sort of posthumous album that was curated by his family. 
Yeah, he after Flash Harry, he didn't release another proper album in his lifetime, but he was no. working on an album uh, up until his death. And it, it plugs back into this notion that he was primarily a fan, that he had enough knowledge of Yoko's career to pull yes. those songs out and to reinterpret them and to understand them. And almost in a full circle movement, you know, for a guy who didn't do live performances or live appearances in the 80s, he starts appearing in what are becoming increasingly popular Beatlefests in America and he's doing them for two reasons. One is he's using them as uh, leverage to promote his gun control uh, politics, yeah. but also he performs live at some of these Beatlefests singing songs. Now, not doing full gigs, but like considering he's not uh, somebody who would take to the stage, there is YouTube footage of him at these Beatlefests yeah. singing, you can't do that and give peace a chance. It's very curious. And it, it does seem to have the I mean, the the main uh, sort of impetus for this does seem to have been the promotion of the sort of gun control mm. aspect. Um, and there's a story that pops up in his biography. It says in 1982, he wrote a song called Judy slash with a bullet. And uh, this was you could you could this was an auction. Oh, yeah. Where you could pay Harry Nelson would write a song. Oh, uh, about you and a lady called Judy paid. I think it was two hundred and fifty dollars. You paid two hundred and fifty dollars oh to get Harry Nelson uh, yes. to, to to write a song about you. Um, but I, 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 what's more interesting, or what's what, what's fascinating, is he's doing this at a time when he's financially in trouble. He's 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 really uh, sort of up against it in in the eighties. But yet he's not focusing on a career. He's very mm. recording very in a very kind of haphazard fashion. Um, Yoko helps him out financially in the late 80s. Uh, Ringo steps in and, and buys him a house. Mm. Um, so people are, are sort of rallying around. Um, he's, 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 he's hugely loved. And, uh, you know, the other flip side of this is that during the 80s, he was just rearing a family. He had settled down at Una. He yes. had a, a number of children. And, um, you know, he, he was he probably would have said he was quite happy watching his kids grow up, you know. Yeah. Um, have you have you have you heard him singing I Love New York in June? Yes, from the, uh, from the Fisher, Fisher King. King, which is one so of his that, last you know, so, things. So again, 1991, uh, uh, Terry Gilliam gets him in to record that. Uh, and again, I think that's a that's a great version his yes, voice really his voice really suits that um you know so he again he was very very tight with the the python guys with eric idol and you know eric idol i think was part of that rambunctious crowd and, <laughs> yes um, and he did appear know, on stage with the pythons at one point didn't he on stage and off stage yes he, <laughs> off, uh, off stage by accident <laughs> by accident yeah he they the pythons were in new york and uh, they would get people on to sort of stand in the chorus of the Lumberjack song. And uh, Harry did that, fell off stage and vanished into the audience. And uh, uh, Eric Idle recounts it was only two or three days later they realized he'd broken his arm and had been carted <laughs> off to hospital. Um, you know, Eric Idle speaks very fondly of him in his uh, autobiography, but in in a slightly rueful way that he never really cleaned up and he didn't get the kind of second chance that Ringo got or even the Graham Chapman, you know, cleaned up and. Uh, yeah, he sort of, it sort of has a tone of, you know, you know, oh, he was at the end of the day, he was his own worst enemy and he should have gotten it together, mm. you know, which, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to, to know what's what the right side of these things is. Um, 
but again, in a full circle uh, kind of motion, his last appearance on stage is in September 1992, and he joins Ringo and his all-star band, Friends Till the End. He comes on yep. and he sings uh, Without You. Um, I haven't heard that. I haven't. don't know if there's a YouTube clip, but it, the, the commentary says Todd Runcon, who was, was in the band at the time, he was really covering for the, for the high notes, but that was in Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. And... Uh, yeah, it's nice that his kind of last performance was with Ringo and that they, they came full circle. Yes. Um, and then, so Harry had a, a heart attack in, in February 1993 and realising that his health was failing, um, he was trying to get his affairs in order. He was trying to finish this unreleased album, which had the working title of Papa's Got a Brown New Robe, which is funny. I, I, I think that is, <laughs> I, I, I wish they'd gone with that instead of Lost and Found. And uh, uh, yeah, and he was also trying to put together, uh, you know, a retrospective full-on career box set of his time at RCA. But he, he didn't get to see either of these things in his lifetime. He, no. he died in uh, January 1994. And... You know, there's a lot to be sad about and a lot to regret in that. But, I, you know, uh, I think as you were touching upon there, he was somebody who should have had a victory lap. You know, yes, there is no yes. reason to think that, a, you know, a 60 year old Harry Nielsen in the 21st century couldn't have, you know, played the Meltdown Festival in the Royal Festival Hall and got standing ovations and toured the way, you know, you see victory laps that have happened for Brian Wilson. And he was somebody who should have had that moment. Yes, his catalogue would absolutely have lent itself to that. You know, it's not a kind of rock and roll, outrageous showman, uh, you know, where you don't want to see a 60-year-old cavorting around stage. I mean, his, he, he absolutely would have knocked that out of the park, I think. Yeah. Um, and and the, have you heard the Lost and Find album? I have. Uh, it's... it's... <sighs> Uh, I, I think I need to go back to it again because, you know, when you when you hear, oh, here's a Harry Nielsen album that, you know, has been in the can for 25 years, your expectation is high. And I don't think my immediate expectations were met. I, and I was also kind of a bit struck that I was a bit discombobulated hearing him again, you know? Yes, I I, I bought it and then I didn't listen to it. I, I, I bought it when it came out um, and then I really didn't want to listen to it. It didn't get, didn't get great reviews it's sort of an okay reviews yeah. it is it is made up of things recorded at different times and uh, it's produced by mark hudson who worked with ringo back in the day um before they fell out and um it, it is a bit of a mishmash but i started listening to it uh, just at the end of last year and just incessantly on repeat and i think it's just such a treat to 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 hear him again um mm. And, and there's a particular track called UCLA, which yeah. is all, all about the Beatles. It's this kind of very slow rolling melody. And he uh, sort of laments the loss of friends and he references New York and he references the Beatles and he talks about Penny Lane and Ringo Starr. And he yesterday, I have to say, I think it's as good as anything he has ever put out. It's it's a beautiful song and it's worth, I, I, worth it, the album just for that, I think. It's, uh, 
you know, it, 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 the, the Harry is someone who, you know, was always, uh, you know, print the legend seemed to be true mm. for Harry. And there's uh, a legend even at his funeral. There's there's kind of the, the legend of the earthquake. And then there's the legend of George being at his funeral. One is true. Yeah. <laughs> one is true and one is not true. Yeah. In, in, in the, uh, he died in 94. And in the mid to late 90s, there was a story started circulating that an earthquake had taken place in L.A. after Harry's death and that his coffin had fallen uh, into the crevice created by the earthquake and was lost and um, <laughs> they, they basically buried an empty coffin and um, uh, Lawrence Juber tells the story he does a little instrumental tribute um, called When Harry Got to Heaven uh, on his album Mosaic and he references this story but I, there's a website called legendsrevealed.com oh, yeah. and uh, they trace this back to a review uh, in The Independent in the UK of a 1997 Marianne Faithful concert. And they say, um, she sits down, lights up, coughs some more. It sounds like every Marianne Faithful <laughs> concert I've ever been at. I'm a big fan. Um, and tells a story and she said, um, uh, as if it wasn't, uh, he survived the 60s, but he had the misfortune to be swindled by his accountant before dying in a dentist's chair. Well, that didn't happen. Um, if that wasn't bad, bad enough, he then disappeared in his coffin as the earth opened up during the Los Angeles quake. Marianne Faithful sings a song in memory of Harry and promises him a line of coke when they next meet. <laughs> well, <sighs> not, not, none, of, none of that is true. There was an earthquake that took place in L.A. in 1994, just a couple of days after Harry died. But that's about it. He died in his sleep. He was working on his album. He went home. He went to bed. He didn't wake up. Um, there were some aftershocks during yeah. the funeral, but there is no record of any funeral home being destroyed. And it didn't happen. But I guess that's a story Harry would have, have enjoyed. He would have loved. It is true that George was at the funeral and led, uh, uh, led the, led, <laughs> led the, led the singing. Led the led singing. singing. What song yes. did he choose? Well, this is, again, this is Mark Hudson who was, who was producing Harry's album at the time and he says, uh, every songwriter was there, Jimmy Webb, Paul Williams, Van Dyke Parks, George, the list of people was scary and it was the last day after the big LA earthquake. So we're all sad and sullen standing around the grave and George just suddenly goes, fuck you. <laughs> And we were all really shocked. We thought he was having some sort of moment. And then he said, that was always my favorite song. So we all joined in and sang it. Sang You're I Breaking thought, My Heart, back to the old. You're Breaking My Heart. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so imagine all the rock and roll royalty singing that song at, uh, at, at Harry's funeral. It warms the cockles. He was, uh, he was the ultimate Beatles fan. And uh, to go back to Jimmy Webb, there's a quote here. Harry was primarily a Beatles man, the number one Beatles fan in the whole world. Harry would say, I don't know why anybody else makes music. The only people who make any music that's worth listening to are the Beatles. And there'll never be another band like the Beatles. That could be our motto, Steve. So when Harry got to make records with John and got to be friends with Ringo and sort of got to be, in a way, the fifth Beatle, his life was complete. That was all he ever wanted. He wanted to know those people. He wanted to be admired by them. That's all there was to it. Everything else was small print, like a PS. And that's kind of it, really. I think that's it. I, I don't think Harry Nielsen was ever unhappy. No, I, 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 I think that sums it up perfectly. He's, he's a man that got to kind of fulfill his dreams. Yeah. And, you know, what more can we ask for than that? 
So, um, yeah, Harry, Harry would have been 80 in 2021. He was only 52 when he died. There's many ways to enjoy Harry Nilsson uh, in the 21st century, but probably the most essential bits and pieces we might point people towards are, you know, the RCA albums box is a ridiculously good thing. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, It's fantastic. Uh, at the time of recording, it's only 42 Earth Pounds on Amazon and it's 17 CDs worth of Harry Nielsen music, 14 albums plus three CDs of sessions, unreleased alternate versions. There's a, over a hundred bonus tracks throughout the entire box with full notes about when they were recorded, who they were recorded with. And uh, it's just a fantastic resource of, you know, it's got pussycats in there, but you got to take it all together. That's the you whole point of Harry. It, it tells a story. And I was very happy to own this until you told me how cheap it now is. But, <laughs> yeah, it uh, wasn't that cheap when it came out. It wasn't that cheap when it came out. It's it's a superb collection and I cannot recommend it highly yeah, enough. Yeah, 17 CDs, 60 bon- or 100 bonus tracks, 40 quid, you can't go wrong. There's If, if you really are that much of a, a cheapskate, there's a new Nielsen compilation out this year, which is a three CD thing called Nielsen Gold, which is only six pounds, six earth pounds. Uh, although it's missing perhaps my favourite Nielsen song, which is Turn On Your Radio, which was covered by oh, Eels yeah. a few years ago and which is a wonderful wonderful song uh i was watching there was a show i was watching recently uh called Moonbase eight and it had nielsen spaceman he just pops up all the time it's, I've noticed. it's kind of random i was watching something and the lottery song which is probably my favorite <laughs> oh yeah that with, is yeah, uh, yeah. it popped up on something uh and again i think that's just a it's a fantastic little song it's very inconsequential but it tells you everything you need to know about him in in the lyrics so. and and his, his 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 reach still continues there's a there's a, a the group Weezer put out a surprise new album in January 2021 called OK Human. And they've said the primary influence for that is the Nielsen Sings Newman album, which is a fantastic mm. Nielsen album from 1970, where he yep. sings um, the Randy Newman songbook. So it's pretty early in Randy's uh, career as well. And it's a it's a phenomenally good uh, example of Harry's multi-tracking and his studio techniques. It seems like a simple album, but it's not. And Weezer have said that their new album, OK Human, is a direct lift from uh, Nielsen Sings. Newman and I've li- I've listened to the Weezer album and I can see exactly where they're coming from and I would highly recommend it as a as a, a as a version of seeing how Harry is still affecting us all musically in the 21st century. Um, so he was a good man. Good man. Good uh, man. Do you want to mention the the documentary that you mentioned earlier, which oh, is yeah, out on true. DVD? It is out. Well, it's out on DVD, but it's it's a it's a bit tricky to find. I think it's called uh, "Who Is Harry Nielsen and Why Is Everybody Talking About Him." It came out on DVD in 2010, and it's a labor of love by some fans. But they managed to get the clearances necessary yeah. and reach. They they interview all the key people except maybe you know any Beatles themselves, but they do talk to Eric Idle and Mickey Dolans and uh, all the other kind of mega uh, Harry Nielsen fans. And it gives a fantastic chronological overview and it's done with um, Harry's family in tow as well. So Una, uh, Harry's wife, appears and she is the star of the show in that documentary. It it really is well worth tracking down. Uh, it, it, It has never, to my knowledge, appeared on television. So you really have to go looking for it, you know. Yeah, I think that's right. I I I'm trying to think where I saw it. Uh, was it was it on the DVD or did it did it make it onto like an arena show once on BBC Two or something? I, but, I, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I you know, I haven't been able maybe, to find it. 
somebody I know downloaded it illegally, but I don't know. Oh, I see. Well, maybe that. Maybe that was. Maybe well, that I wouldn't was recommend it. that. Um, uh, but it's very, so, very so, good. So, worth looking at. so we're we're basically saying uh, Harry Nelson was the fifth Beatle, and if you like the Beatles, you <laughs> love Harry Nelson, and uh, you should just buy all of his records well, in one go. We're, we're aware that this, this is a Beatles podcast, and uh, this hasn't really been an episode particularly about the Beatles, but he's certainly someone who weaves into the tapestry of the Beatles' lives. And if you're a Beatles fan, plugging yourself into Harry Nelson makes perfect sense. And for forty quid to buy. 90% of his recorded work is a well uh, worthwhile use of your money. And so, as usual, whenever we're doing these podcasts, we want to send people back to the music. And if it's Beatle music or Harry Nielsen music uh, or you know Harry's versions of Beatles music, uh, he's covered She's Leaving Home, Blackbird, Isolation, all the uh, Beatles strikes he's covered over the years. Um, that's what we want to send you back listening to. But what do you think, everybody? Do you like Pussycats? Do you think it's good? Are you already Nielsen fans? Have we sold you on the Nielsen vibe? Uh, let us know. Get in touch in all the usual places. We are available on Twitter at Beatles Pods, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, where Stephen will let you in, and our website, nothingisrealpod.com, which gives you links to all our social media, uh, all our playlists. I think we'll have to put together a best of Nielsen playlist for this episode and stick that up there as well. And other ways of getting in touch with us, past episodes, past playlists, everything is on Nothing Is realpod.com so check that out uh, but for now I'm Jason Carty I'm Stephen Cockroft and this has been Nothing Is Real thanks for listening Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST+, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.